The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. I'm Don Bethanelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Minority Report, where we will discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings of this 2002 film directed by Steven Spielberg. And joining me today on the panel are Thomas Sanherro. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Don. How's it going? Good, thank you. And Father Michael Gossett. Hi, Father. How's it going, Don? Very well. Very well. Uh, b- before we get into it, just want to remind folks, please like The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on Facebook. On our Facebook page, please retweet us on Twitter where we're at SQPN uh, and leave comments uh, on the show, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our show page, uh, everywhere you can, because uh, that not only does it provide content for the shows, so we can d- discuss about your insights. Uh, it helps to the algorithms on the social media platforms to get the show in front of more people and people can find it and discover it and enjoy it like you enjoy it, hopefully. Uh, and if you have not done so, and I don't know why you wouldn't have, but if you are listening to this by clicking a button, say, on our website, please subscribe to the show in iTunes. You can subscribe in Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app on YouTube, where you should hit the bell to get notifications uh, for the whenever sh- new shows are posted there. If you have a, a Google Home or an Amazon Echo device, you could say, hey, and then whatever the Shlomo word is there, the... Uh, uh, Argyle. Hey, Argyle. I always have to keep looking over, make sure it doesn't uh, activate as I'm doing this part. Uh, play Secrets of Movies and TV Shows podcast. And as long as you put the word podcast in the end, it will play the latest episode of the show. Um, so all those things, that helps us to get the word out, to to, to, to get more people interested in the show, and it helps us immensely. Uh, one thing I want to mention is uh, you, if you are subscribed to the show, you may have noticed a, a new episode last week of of this podcast under the title of Coffee and Cinema. Uh, it's a new thing we're doing, and, and we try to explain it uh, in the podcast, but in case it needs to be explained again, uh, Father Chip Hines and I, we're, we're, we live locally. We live nearby. We've been friends for years, and uh, we both love movies. And so we're going to start going to movies like as soon as they're out or, or close to when they're out, uh, and we'll go. We'll watch the movie. We'll come out. We'll go get a coffee or other adult beverage, and sit down and chat for, you know, 20 minutes, a half an hour about our first impressions. And so these shows, we talk about movies that have been out for a while. I mean, we're talking about a, uh, almost two decade old movie in this episode. Uh, but or you know, but we usually talk about movies that are out maybe on streaming or whatever. Uh, but this is a chance for us to talk about movies that are fresh and new. And then we'll give them the longer treatment, uh, you know, later on. So uh, so our first episode last week was on Captain Marvel and uh, go check it out. We have a spoiler-free segment, and then we we warn you, and then we we spoil it uh, pretty good. So you can listen if you haven't seen the movie yet. You can listen to the first part, and once you see the movie, you can listen to the whole thing. Or some people don't care about spoilers. That's not me. I I don't know why you wouldn't care about spoilers, but uh, <laughs> but if you don't care, you listen to the whole thing. All right, that's all the preliminaries. Let's get into the this ep- this episode. Uh, well, the first thing I should mention is we're not going to be doing all Steven Spielberg movies. <laughs> On secrets of movies and TV shows, we've been doing a lot of them. I know we've we've had Raiders: The Lost Ark, and we've had uh, 
the Jurassic Park movies. Uh, and now we're talking about another Spielberg movie. It's just that I mean, Spielberg, he's done so many movies. So uh, it just happens that uh, this has come up. But uh, Minority Report is is one of those iconic movies. Like, like I said, it came out in 2002. And it's really set the tone for a lot of stuff. A lot of the ways that we look at technology around us. Uh, of a lot of the movies of the past couple of decades have been influenced by this movie. Um, it's 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 a very influential movie. So we want to kind of dig into some of the layers of this of this film and explore some of the the, the issues that it raises uh, as uh, in its in its plot, but also in the way it portrays the world. Um, Thomas, you said you you read the original book, the Philip K. Dick book that it's based on. Father, have you read that one? I have not. No. Okay. So, uh, so Thomas, you're the only one who's who's read the book in, in this conversation. Right. So, <laughs> how, how does the how does the book uh, c- compare connect to this movie? Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty. It's it's close thematically with the concepts of what precognition uh, does and how it how it the, the moral questions of whether or not we can predict the future. It's interesting though that in the movie where it kind of takes this bent of oh this is a bad thing. Uh, in the books, there's actually this really weird twist at the end where uh, the main character, uh, who's an older balding cop, not the you know uh, sleek athlete that um, uh, that uh, the character is in this movie, uh, he he decides that precognition is so important that he chooses to commit the murder that he has been precognitively um, told that he's going to do. So. The first thing he finds out is that he's going to do it. And the second thing he finds out is that, oh, there's a future in which he doesn't do it. And then the third thing he finds out is that he, he chooses to do it in order to keep the program going. And that's the biggest difference that runs through the whole theme of the book that or the story that doesn't really run through the movie. That um, it, So I, in, in my mind, I, I'm never one that says the books are better than the movies because they're they're two different formats. And in this situation, it's definitely true. So I recommend if you have seen the movie and you liked it, Go read the book because the book has a very different take on the whole concept as it goes through. Yeah, the the movie itself it it has that that topic. I mean, that comes up the the whole issue, especially right at the end. That the you know the in the the climactic point is either you know you you the, he kind of lays this out to Burgess, played by Max von Sydow. You can either kill me and silence me, uh, but but also then prove that precognition doesn't work or or, or or, or, or was it prove that precognition works and kill me and then get, go to jail, or you could not kill me and prove that precognition doesn't work, you know, and, right. and, and, and I, and I survive and tell everyone what you've done. And, and it's sort of this whole, um, there's still th- that question there, but it's a different question. Right. So let's, let's dig into the big themes in this movie then. Uh, let's, let's save the whole, the question of the morality of pre-crime and free will versus determinism for, for for late for later because that's that's really the big question. But let's deal with some of the the smaller ones um, first. Let's talk about the technology that it portrays. So this is a um, a, a a future imagined. So tw- it's supposed to be twenty fifty four. So in still in our future yet, uh, and it's supposed to be um, a world in which, uh, for one thing, advertising is pervasive and personalized to the extreme. So as you walk down the street billboards are not just billboards they play their their videos and they they call to you by name because um well in this one it's 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 interesting that it uses a retina scans 
versus what today we would we would have is um, facial scanning or even gait scanning. Gait recognition is a new technology where everyone's walk is a little different. So, but mm-hmm. uh, so what? What do you? I mean, so what do you think about the prediction of the the technology of the future that we see in this almost two decade old film? Yeah, it strikes me for when it was made. Uh, if I'm right, this is like kind of right after the iPhone debuted. No, no. Um, this no, is no. this is seven or eight that. years before the iPhone. Yeah, yeah really? this is, this is okay. right after the iPod was first oh, introduced. Okay. Yeah. The iPod was introduced the year before this movie came out, so oh, it probably okay. wasn't even an issue in the production. Really, right? Yeah, so that kind of makes it more impressive to me. Even like, there's definitely things that they got wrong. Um, uh, the the big moment that stuck out for me that kind of made, made me laugh. Tom Cruise is using his gloves. He's he's manipulating the big oh, yeah. clear. Uh, monitor and moving memories and images but to transfer information they still have to pull these glass slides out right and connect them physically they don't have wi-fi (laughs) yeah the the wi-fi isn't there the cloud isn't there um but i think uh the advertising like we may not have it in the same way but just you go on the internet all of it's tailored to you and i think that's it's a good hint of it the self-driving cars are still way beyond anything we we could have but we're moving that way. Um, right. Yeah, there's just, there's a lot of good little moments. And, and I think it, it surprised me that the movie was as old as it was. Uh, this was like my second year of college and it didn't feel like that long ago. And uh, they've, a lot of the things they hinted at it, even with the things they got wrong point towards developments that have happened. Uh, and maybe it went down a different path in certain, certain circumstances, but uh I think it was a pretty good vision of the future. Even it's a little closer to what we have today than a lot of other things I've seen. So you mentioned the iPhone and that's a good point. Like a lot of people, like when the iPhone came out and had the multi gesture touch interface, a lot of people said, Oh, that's very quote unquote minority report. Um, in, in, in fact, so in some ways, um, Minority Report was acknowledged as the inspiration for all of these touch interfaces we have now the multi-touch interfaces um, you know, that, you know, that Apple, you know, kind of was inspired by it. Although even in this, it wasn't just a touch interface. You had to wear the glove. Like you had right. to be wearing like the special glove in order to get things to work. So I thought that was interesting. I, 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 I agree with that. That was a huge part of this movie. In fact, they use that even in the advertising of it, like the, the gestures. Um, although I, I, I did notice like, like you did, they, they still have physical media. They have discs and things mm-hmm. that have to be pl- plugged into stuff and discs that have to be carried from place to place uh with data well, I, on I remember them. at that point one of the big things that they were talking about in tech was um the glass storage technology yes. where you could store three-dimensional holographic information and um that kind of fell by the white wayside because we moved into this cloud computing and we didn't need storage as much locally and uh but that was I, you could see that at play in the movie and then we moved in a different direction technologically than mm-hmm. than what that prediction would have been but uh it was it's so accurate and it's it's one of those times where you have to ask the question is this art imitating life or life imitating art <laughs> and did how many because you know we are at that age where most of us were college age or just right around there these same guys that invented all this stuff, that was their age, too, when this movie came out. And how much did that influence what they were working on and where they went with it? Right. Well, just like the flip phone, the, the original Motorola StarTac uh, flip phone, 
was they they came out and said the Motorola engineer said this was inspired by Star Trek communicators from the original series. When we were kids, we all were geeks and wanted to have Star Trek communicators, so we invented the flip phone. <laughs> we made one. There you go. Uh-huh. Exactly. So <laughs> it's, I, it, it is super interesting that like rather than you know these movies are things like oh I wish we could be there someday. It's just inspiring the people to do it. And right. Uh, so you never know. Yeah. This is this is cross pollination where the writers are inspired by the by the technology that they see. And then the, the people developing technology are themselves inspired by the, the, the movies. Another bit of technology we see in there is uh, is home automation. We see mm-hmm. uh, Atherton, Anderton. I always keep calling him Atherton. Anderton comes home into his apartment and he addresses the, the home. And I'm like, wow, I do that today. I mean, not in the same way he does. But yeah, I mean, I can walk into a room and I can ask for the lights to go on. And, and, and some of those things like that was very interesting uh, to, to kind of see that how far we've come with that. Uh, I was saying before we started, one of my one of my you know little quirks, I, I really enjoy some, uh, something called paleofuturism, which is looking at how people in the past in, predicted the future or envisioned the future. And sometimes you can go back to turn of the century, turn of the 20th century uh, people and they, how they predict, you know, like blimps everywhere and all that sort of stuff, you know, by by the by the end of the 20th century. Um, but even even in this short time span to see some of that is it's fascinating. Even the uh, pre-crime, their headquarters, like that could be, you know, Google's offices or right. Apple's yes. offices or something. It just looks very now. Yeah. And and that's and the other really interesting thing, and, and this is having read the books and having read a lot of Philip Dick's work. Um, the this was his kind of thing in the 50s when he wrote this story initially uh he he was writing it in the 50s and he had all these little quirky things where you had to pay a dime to get to open your door to your apartment <laughs> and uh you know to keep the refrigerator running you had to put money into it and so he kind of built this very different view based on the tech that was in the 50s and then they updated it for this movie to kind of look at the future from where they already were right right it was some of the other tech uh, that's really prominent is the the maglev cars uh, that drive up the side of buildings. I'm not sure that there's a reason for that, <laughs> whether, <laughs> whether that's practical or not, but it's but it looked cool and it provided some cool uh, scenes. Um, one thing that was interesting was that uh, the newspaper. Now, you've noticed when he was on the, uh, the, the, the subway, the guy's reading USA Today. It looks like a newspaper. It's, it's paper-ish, like it flops. Uh, but it updates in real time, like sort of like an iPad would or, or mm-hmm. something. Right. Uh, so that that envisioning that, you know, people will still want things that feel like the stuff we recognize today, like a newspaper. But it will have that advanced technology of updating in real time, although it would be really annoying for my paper to update while I'm reading the article, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, which, which is what Facebook does now as I'm reading and it just scrolls. Uh, yeah, it's bad enough. <laughs> it's OK, Facebook. I wasn't actually reading that, but thanks. Uh, uh, so that was that, that. That was interesting. And then some of the, the, the in the chase scene. So his the fellow, the, the uh, pre-crime cops, they have these uh, very cool uh almost retro rocket packs that they fly around with mm-hmm. uh, rocket packs are the most impro- improbable, impractical yeah. <laughs> uh, transportation device ever invented uh, or imaginary invented. Uh, although the, um, the helicopter like craft is very cool. I, I really like yeah. that. Yeah, no, that one's really neat. The thing that sticks out to me from those scenes that I hope never gets invented is the, the six sticks. Yes. They used yeah. to detain people. Oh my. 
Yeah, it was very interesting they, they, that, uh, and we'll talk more about pre-crime, but as they seek out the criminals, they, they don't use deadly force. It's all about, uh, they, they use, you know, non-lethal force like this device that when stabbed, you know, would, when pushed against somebody and activated, it makes them so nauseous that they vomit immediately. Sorry, folks. And are incapacitated uh, for a time. So it's, it's interesting that it's, and we could talk more about how they go about prosecuting this this crime. And as once we're done with this part, I, I think one thing to go back to is like with talking about the jetpacks. Uh, there are a lot of really cheeky uh, throw asides to other sci-fi franchises in this one. And that was one to Fahrenheit 451, the original Fahrenheit 451 movie. Uh, they had those jetpacks that they flew, flew around in. And there's another one where the um, the the drug dealer uh, pulls back his hood and he's missing the eyes and he says, uh, "In the one in, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king." And that's an H.G. Wells reference. So, for a sci-fi nerd like me watching this movie, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I recognize all of this stuff. It's so good." And Spielberg <laughs> just laced it all in really perfectly to everything that was going on. That's true. Yeah, the, there are a lot of little Easter eggs. Um, I mean, Spielberg is really good at l- l- put it layering little little things that connect to other stuff. Cause he's a huge, he's a huge fan of the movies and huge right. fan of, of this sort of genre. So yeah, it's true. Um, it's, I'm just trying to think of other bits of uh, tech that we could talk about. Um, there is uh, Oh, the obnoxious cereal box. We talked about the ads everywhere. Uh, if you can imagine a cereal box that won't shut up on your table, <laughs> you know, I mean, that sort of stuff. So the, the ubiquity and the, and the insanity of, uh, of the uh, of the advertising really gets at the heart of like how people I mean what do we deal with now we deal with robocalls and pop up ads and all and spam and all that sort of stuff we had spam then but uh, you know in two thousand one but it's still much more uh, it's it's different and 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 in some ways yeah. getting worse all right so uh, so that's the technology I think I don't know that we need to say too much more about that we can talk about it as it comes up if it does. A little more background on the film. So the actors are Tom Cruise is the star. He plays Chief Anderton, who's the head of the pre-crime division in Washington, D.C. They are a specialized police department local to D.C. where this prototype or pilot program uh, is in force, where they can they have these three young people, uh, young adults who have exhibited these special abilities under certain circumstances to see the future of certain things and they they only see violent they only see murder uh, they don't see other violent crimes they don't see other crimes but they only see the murders in advance and it varies uh the amount of time in advance they they will see that it's going to occur and so somehow they've passed some laws that allow <laughs> they've suspended the constitution somehow that allow them to go and uh, and arrest these people about to commit crime, pre-criminals. So you have Tom Cruise as the chief of pre-crime. Colin Farrell plays a Department of Justice uh, agent, Danny Whitwer. The the feds are thinking of taking this program nationwide and will probably want to take over the D.C. program. So there's a bit of conflict there. Um, You have uh, Agatha is one of the three precogs. And you have Max von Sydow as Anderton's superior, and the character's name is Lamar Burgess. And so the, the show starts, the, the movie starts with, they give us a sort of a textbook example of a pre-crime in progress. We have, a, let's see, they, they report the crimes by these little wooden balls. I thought it was a very fascinating 
idea, which is uh, Tom, Tom, Thomas, can you explain how the, the little wooden balls are play, are important here? This, so this was really neat. Uh, the, the wooden balls like uh, and, and this is really interesting because it's a kind of deviation from uh, from the book. But then it also like plays into this whole concept of uh, this is such a mystical thing. Like these these telepaths, they have these precognitions. And then the computer is analyzing these precognitions. And as it sees things come up, it will post out these balls. And then the balls roll down uh, this huge marble type track, which is completely ridiculous. And, right. um, and obviously there for us to have the suspense of watching this ball roll down the thing. And if the ball is is like a regular wooden color, then it's a murder that's that's been premeditated. It's going to happen at some point in the future and we don't need to worry about it too much. But if it comes out red. Uh, it's something that's going to happen soon and it needs to be done. It's either, either a crime of passion or it's a, a murder that's about to happen very, very soon. We need to be on top of this one right now as the precog unit. And then they um, and then they act on those uh, on, on, on it is. And all it is, is it's the victim's name. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, play on what's happening here, because it's not about uh, the murderer. It's about the victim. Well, the first name so that comes out is the victim. Oh, that's right. And then and then the murderer comes out after that. And so you so they have to go and figure out, you know, and so the, the victim is the important one. And then the and then the murderer comes out. And you have to go and find these two people. We don't have any other knowledge about them. And nothing else about them. Like, no, no, nothing about where it's going to happen. Nothing about what time it's going to happen. Just this is going to happen. Except <laughs> they, then, they do have the ability to kind of dig into the vision. They could see what the precogs see and even like enhance it like zoom in on certain things and, and it's very it's fascinating they never get into like how that's even possible or not or what sort of the what how the oh they do talk about that they they have uh these harnesses on the heads of the precogs that are reading their minds essentially i mean so we get mind reading in the future too um and and that's how they they get this information so yeah so that's a that's a a, a good synopsis of of how it works and so they get these balls and then they figure out who it is and then they, and they have to do actual detective work, which right. is at least good. You know, they have to actually go and, and find these people, but they don't have to dig very much into them. They just go and like, it seems like they kind of just go and arrest them. And right. there you go. And uh, the, mo the movie does a good job of making us feel initially like this is an okay thing because it's given us a pretty clear cut, you know, beginning of a typical murder mystery uh story where we see the murderer getting ready to actually commit the crime right and and we are we as the audience are ready for this thing to happen and then all of a sudden there's an interruption and uh and it gives you a lot of sympathy right off the bat for what these officers are doing because they just saved this woman's life you know and um and it's really interesting how spielberg is able to achieve that because for me, who I've always been a, you know, very much a, a lover of freedom and a lover of uh, free will and people have people make choices and we, you know, we need to deal with the way that people make choices. Watching that, you still get this sense, you know, even now as as much into that as I am, I'm watching it and I'm going, yeah, they, they do save the woman's life. Very clearly they do. I think the from the beginning, the the pre crime pre crime cops, they believe in it like they're mm -hmm. true believers and particularly Tom Cruise's character that. Uh, there's no cynicism in it. They very much see as like, this is going to happen if we get to stop it. They work as hard as they can uh, to get to, I mean, at that initial crime, he, he stops that man in the act. He's raising his arm and it's right at that moment. 
I think that's what really sells it at the beginning, that these are good guys and they believe in this thing that really works. Uh, and I like the turn uh, when Tom Cruise, when it's, when Tom Cruise shows up in one of those memories, it's suddenly, it's a perfect system until it's you. And then, it, and you see all those problems of, of what's really going on. You know, the thing that kind of got me about that first crime that they stop is even without pre-crime, that was a real crime. That was attempted murder. He was in the act of, of swinging the scissors. He was threatening them. That They didn't need to pre-crime him. That was actual crime. Now, how they got there and, and all that stuff was is the fantastical science fiction-y bit, but it, it, it sort of inserts that element of, you know, there's still, you know, uh, uh, resisting arrest and assault and all these other crimes that this guy has done. But all of that is superseded by the pre-crime, and then they put the halo on him, and there's this device, they call it the halo, which essentially, they don't, they don't explain it in the movie very much, but it's like they, it, it um, anesthetizes or some sort of coma. Thomas, did they, did they go into it in the book about what it was? No, it was, it was very different in the book. This was a, that was one of the things that was very different. And it's one of the things that I think as we discuss this, I'd like to come back to later because I have some uh, some ideas about Spielberg happy endings and um, how this movie does not end as happily as Spielberg likes his movies. Too. <laughs> all right. All right. That's good. We can come back to that. So um, so but, but it raises the fundamental question in this in this movie, which is, do we have free will? Or are, is our fate, are our actions predetermined? And from, from a Catholic point of view, uh, and I'll, I'll throw this up to both of you, uh, what, from, from a Catholic point of view, what is the answer here? Are we, are we fated? Are we, is what we do predetermined? I mean, God has foreknowledge of the future, uh, but, but, you know, is, but, do we all, but do we not also have free will and can change? And then that raises the question, is, you know, what where does that say about pre-crime and precognition? What, what do you think? I think that's the the key what you just said. God has foreknowledge. And and even in this system, like if you believe that these three people, they can't see the future or they can see a future, uh, and that's real in the world of the movie. Um, but they don't have all the details, they don't have everything right, and they see this is what could happen if people act this way. And I think that's the um, kind of the, the Catholic perspective to bring into it is that no human, even a, a superhuman in this case, has that perfect knowledge of what will happen. Uh, we can right. kind of like Tom Cruise's analogy with Whitmer. He tosses the, the wooden ball along the curve of the, the giant clear monitor and uh, Whitmer, Whitmer catches it. And he says, well, why'd you catch that? Uh, because it was going to hit the ground and uh, kind of that that's a very human perspective of thinking, well, I see the pieces. This is what it's going to add up to. So this is what it must mean. And we I think the movie very much is about like, well, that's not necessarily true that we can't see all the pieces. God can see all the pieces. And that's why we would say God can judge in a way that we can. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think the the one thing you take away from this, too, is like um, you don't know the whole story. And I think that's uh, especially when those when the red ball comes out is that you have to act on it immediately. And uh, there might be a lot of mitigating circumstance there. And you might actually uh, stop something that is, uh, you know, maybe somebody's doing this out of self-defense. Maybe they are 
they are trying to defend themselves. And especially with like a, a, a passionate moment, I wasn't planning on killing the person, but they're attacking me and I have to defend myself or my family or someone who's going to be injured by them. Uh, and you step in to stop that. Well, you know, what is what is the the the, the ramification the, you know the butterfly effect where how how does that affect other things that were happening and maybe this person has a history of being violent and that this was the moment that they were going to be stopped but you've prevented them from being stopped i'm not advocating you know murder or self-defense but mm. uh, you know we don't know the whole story and that's that's where i think that that level of yes we see this one little sliver of of a murder happening but we don't know the entire tale that goes into it. And that's, as a Catholic, we have to look at that bigger perspective. And we're called to kind of step back from the world and detach from the feeling that we have of it and try and, and adopt God's perspective of, of the way things are advancing and the way things are moving. That's a, it's actually one of the things that makes this movie maybe perhaps more relevant today than ever. We talked about this topic on our other podcast, Secrets of Technology, that we see we you know we we see videos or stories in the news and we we make snap judgments about what they're portraying and the classic one currently right now is what happened at the march for life with the kids from Covington Kentucky and the confrontation with the counter protesters and and that sort of thing and there was an immediate judgment that this is what's happening in this snippet of video this wasn't even a precognition uh, you know that was blurry this was a little of you know a video uh, snippet and then as we got more context, we it completely changed everything. And that's what happens in this movie is, is in several cases, in several moments, we see something. We, the audience, believe what we know what's going on. The, the characters believe they know what's going on. But then as the movie progresses, we realize there is something completely different. And the, the, the classic first one is, is when uh, Anderton is seen in a precognition shooting this this uh leo fellow the this guy and he, he's committing a murder and then when everything plays out it plays out very differently um and and then at the in the final one in resolution we find out that someone who knows how the system works has used that the limitations of precognition and the inability to see the whole context to get away with the murder that the system is used to, to do that and and it's so but i feel like it's it's th this story is as relevant today as it's ever been because you know one of the i think there's a message in here in, not just about free will and determinism but about the limitations of our technology in 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 giving us the truth and that's a huge element today as well as in the, then mm -hmm. well i, I think, think one of the one of the cool things about the way the movie presents all this is that everything's very bright throughout the whole movie except for these snippets that you get from the uh from the the tele or from from the telepaths because they are um they're very dark they're very shadowy they're very desaturated used yeah and it's and it, and it's stark contrast to everything else that's going on in the film because everything else in the film is very very clean very bright very very showy uh even the shadowy elements of what uh of what Anderton's doing are still in that kind of bleached uh clean uh nature things so the, the dark alley is not as dirty as it could be <laughs> uh but but we've got this very dim view of the reality of the future and i and i love that because that's that's what you're gonna get as like when you're just feeling out you know it goes back to that star wars moment 
uh, emotion the future is from Yoda, where he's you <laughs> yeah. know, saying that's all we can really see is what what is happening emotionally to people in the future, because it's unclear what really is going to happen. And we see what we want to see. I think it goes to show that the way that uh, Burgess tricks the system is because they look for the thing that they expect and they look for, well, this person wasn't murdered. We stopped that. That's taken care of. And uh, the same thing with uh, Anderson's character that this system detects murders. And so that's what we see when we come to it. And I think uh, just the all the controversies and drama that we see continuously in the media today often arises because you see something, you read something, and you have your opinion based on what you already feel about it. And uh, rather than stepping back and thinking, well, these are people and there's a whole context to this. Yeah, Th- mm-hmm. Thomas, what you said about the, uh, the the precognition visions being dark and dim, it, it reminded me of the verse, 1 Corinthians uh, thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I've been fully understood. I mean, it speaks to this idea that, you know, we we think we see clearly, but we don't. Um, it is only, you know, in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, with the power of God, the Father, that we will see that God sees clearly these things. He sees the future clearly. But we don't um, it, it, as much as we want to, as much as we think we do. Uh, so. Right. Well, I think it goes back to that, you know, they, they do steal that line from H.G. Wells in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. It's uh, they, they, they don't have a perfect vision of the future, but man, wouldn't it be great to, to have a glimpse of the future? And, I, and that's part of the problem here is that, you know, they're relying on this thing because it's so powerful and, it's, it, and it speaks so much to that power of being able to know time before it happens. But it, it's still just one eye and, and mm-hmm. it lacks that perception and it lacks that understanding and that depth that you need. That's the unspoken part of that quote is you know, from what Wells is saying is the one eyed man may be king. But if a two eyed guy ever showed up, he would right. he would know all. I mean, and that's the exactly. that's the thing that one eyed man still does not have the complete perspective. Uh, one of the things that we, we, we talked about before we started was how the, this future that they portray looks very sleek. Um, and uh, like a cool place to live. And there's, there's no murder in D.C. in this time. And and it's a it's pr- probably a very safe place to live. But it's it's a sort of a benign authoritarian state. We talked about some of the technology, the, the pervasive retina scanning and all of these other, uh, you, you know, the, the police. And, and of course, the pre-crime, which is an, a, a sort of an authoritarian uh, kind of uh, situation. Um, and it brings to mind the fact that this movie came out in June of 2002, about nine months after 9-11. Now, of course, the movie was in production long before 9-11 happened. And so I'm not going to say that it was, you know, what the way the movie portrayed these things uh, was informed, was necessarily largely informed by 9-11. But I wonder how much that the, the, the mindset that we, we kind of got into after 9-11 informed at least maybe the packaging of it or the editing of it. Um, and, and maybe putting some more of this, you know, in our fear for our safety, what, what, how much liberty are we willing to give up? I mean, that famous Ben Franklin quote uh, about uh, give up a little um, liberty for security and you'll give up all of your liberty. 
Um, I'm paraphrasing, of course. I could find it if I if I googled it, but but uh, so it, I I find that's an, an interesting context uh, that of from the time that this movie came out. That whole scene where they search the apartment building, where it's more like kind of like projects uh, for horror people. Not only are the the little spider robots pretty frightening, and you can see how terrifying it is for these people, uh, but uh, they're used to it and utterly accepting of it. They're mad about it, but they that couple stops arguing, stands still while spider robots crawl up them and scan their eyes, and then they continue with their argument. And I think even the, the attitude of the pre-crime officers going in there, it's very much like we have this power, we can enforce this in this moment. And uh, they, really, they really live in this sort of dystopia where there's a lot going on, but there's a real underbelly of oppression and I think even with uh, where the precogs came from was mothers uh, or children of drug addicted mothers of that same drug that uh, Anderton gets into and is addicted to, that there's this whole uh, darker side to this almost like Apple store reality that they live in. Um, but uh, they that kind of gets hidden by uh, we have all these incredible gifts. And I think the three of us have spent a lot of time speaking about Jurassic Park. Um, and all the the problems with making dinosaurs and thinking that you have this uh if you have this technology you should use it but it really goes to show that uh in this movie they've solved problems but it doesn't take away human nature and right you come up against that in the movie over and over again mm -hmm. yeah technology is not a not a panacea it's um you know, it's not gonna it's not gonna heal all ills but it it can make a great world but it's not the answer to all question. There's poverty, there's drug addiction, there's the sort of cyber sex place that he mm -hmm. goes to, and all that's just kind of amplified by the technology that's there. And, and technology can become, and he is portrayed in the movie as sort of a, like a replacement for God. Like we worship at the, at the altar technology. In fact, Whitwer, the, the uh, federal agent, uh, says at one point that uh, science has stolen much of the mystery of the world from us, but the precogs have restored a hope of the divine. Some people have even started to deify them. And I'm thinking like Delphic oracles. And, and that's, that's an interesting aspect of, you know, when, when we strip God out of the equation, uh, but we find somebody who's willing to save us from ourselves because they, through their sacrifice, they are saving us from our sins of m murder in this case. Um, and, and so they become, Christ figures that supplant Christ in people's minds. They, they are they're the, the, the room that they're held in is called the temple even, you know I mean? It's, it's very, there's, there's very, um, uh, uh, religious overtones to everything. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time, Anderton says, says to him, it helps. It's better if you don't think of them as human, the, these, these three young people. And I'm like, wow, what does this say about this world? Um, because, if if you don't even think of these three people as human, I mean, it, you you're, you've deadened your heart and deadened your soul to these people. What does that say about how you think about the people that are pre criminals and uh, you know on the street? It's it's this is very much a dystopian world that they're living in. Is as sleek and as exciting as it might seem from the technology point. Yeah, it's all sort of built on a lie too. That I think of the scene where the teacher or the tour guide is talking to the kids about the pre cogs. Talk about how they have a gym and a game room, and that they they live these great lives, but they're uh, they're catatonic. Out on drugs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
and even like yeah how tom cruise's character treats them that he's had to push them away in that same way that people build this sort of deification of them that they see them as this mystical uh godlike force but uh they're really taken out of their humanity well but how much like the way we treat god that is too where it's this uh you know he's this uh this magic slot machine in the sky, you know, we, we, we pray for things and just, uh, don't consider a relationship. A lot of times that's, that's where our prayers get boiled down to. And we don't think about the fact that our prayers are building a relationship with an actual being and not just using him to solve problems in our lives. And, and that, and that's, and it's very clear that even though, even though they're deifying these, uh, precogs, they're doing it in exactly the same way that a lot of people end up approaching their own religion uh, and just praying for the things that they want or the things that they feel like they need rather than trying to develop that communion right. that they need to have. That, rec- that, that relationship um, that should be there, that, that's about an exchange of persons um, and forming those bonds. Right. Uh, and, and that's one of the, that's, a, that's I would say, is the third key element in this movie is the its view uh, it you know showing how how we can dehumanize one another dehumanize people um and the you know we need to treat people with human dignity and respect and care uh and when we don't we are dehumanized and in the moments that this movie really gets very human is when we're not in the city we're out on the i think the Maryland shore with Anderton's ex-wife and Agatha and 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 Anderton and they're they're connecting and she has this moment where she kind of tells them this is the life that could have been for your son so we didn't say say but if you've watched the movie you know Anderton is motivated by the murder of his young uh, I think six year old son uh, before pre crime was a thing um, and and he's trying to prevent you know more murders and so that's one of the things that sort of it motivates him, but it also haunts him. Um, he sort of lives, he literally lives in the past through uh, these recordings. He has home movies of his wife and his son that he that he can project holographically. And they should have a scene where he's watching them and he's hearing himself on the recording, but he's sort of acting out that moment in life. He's literally, literally living in the past in that moment with his son who's who's died. And this precog, Agatha, shares with him, this is the future you could have had, um, which, on, A, shows that you know, what they see is not necessarily the future. She's seeing a future that can't exist because her, their son is already dead. So therefore, what the precog see is not necessarily determined. Um, but also, B, you know, that you've got to move on. You've got to re- make this human connection again. You've got to live now instead of in the future or the past, uh, and I, and I thought I thought that was a very interesting way of show, of showing that in that story. I th- and I think that's I and I have to I have to throw the uh, the the wrench in on this one because I love that I love that moment at the end, but it's very clearly Steven Spielberg telling a story at the end of the movie that was not coming from the movie itself. Uh, the movie was leading up to that, uh, like trying to tell this dystopian tale. And Spielberg cannot have a sad ending in a movie. <laughs> and, 
And he should have just let it go in this one because that's a moment after Anderton has been caught. After he was caught, yes. And so he had the halo put on him and then he miraculously escapes. <laughs> Somehow he gets out of the out of the binding that he's in and he goes and confronts the man that, that um, you know, that that knows more about the whole situation. And then he goes out into the into this uh, this nice rural setting and everything. And I really do feel like that is the if, if you look at the movie properly, that is the dream that he has been left with with his little halo on. Well, no, that and, the scene with Agatha is before he gets caught. Oh, is it before he yeah. gets caught? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's, the, right, that's the, right. But the scene at the end where he's with the wife and the right, and she's in that in right, the way. Right, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's and that's what I think. I think you see in this movie that that he is atoning for his sins through that that moment of being stuck, where he's trying to come to terms with that the relationships that he's lost, the bridges that he's burned, all the people that he's considered uh, things rather than people throughout the course of what he's dealt with. And, and I love the brokenness that you see in a human there where you see this person who has been complete. I mean, he's, his son was taken from him and they don't even know his fate. He's, they, they assume he's been murdered because they can't find him. And, um, and then he, he ends up confronting the murderer and who he makes the right choice. Right. You know, and then that's pulled and, that pulled out from under him, right? Right, and then that's pulled out from under him, and and it's and it's just you see this completely broken person trying to cope with what he, you know, who he is and who he's become, and it's really, it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's like a whole nother movie that needed a whole nother movie to really <laughs> explain, and you only get it in the last twenty minutes of this one. <laughs> it's a very strange turn. Because suddenly it's the Laura movie. It's his wife becomes the hero to the point of taking a gun into the pre-crime headquarters and, and spring him. And I think that's, to me, I, re I was reading about this, what you're referring to, this theory of like, well, this is all a dream. None of this is real at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the thing that makes me think, well, maybe it is a dream that suddenly this, his wife, who he hasn't seen really, wasn't really part of the movie is out there uh, being the action hero was, is right. a sort of surprising thing. That is, that is true. That's, that's an interesting way of, of, of thinking about it then. Yeah. Cause I hadn't, I hadn't considered that possibility uh, that what, that the resolution, which is a pretty pat resolution. I mean, in the end we have this, this, this narrative of pre-crime is abandoned. All the prisoners have been unconditionally pardoned and released. Um, and Agatha and the uh, twins that are, living in isolation but but happy um out in the middle of nowhere so that they cannot pre uh, have precognition of anybody else's crimes uh etc cetera, etc cetera. and there's sort of a perfect and then you know uh Atherton and his wife uh, live happily ever after with their new family uh th that is a pretty neat resolution it's a pretty there's a there's a bow uh, on that i guess so i could i could see where uh, i mean it's Although it would be similar, now that I think about it, to another Philip K. Dick novel turned into a movie, a similar theory where people believe that Blade Runner, now, of course, the Blade Runner sequel sort of undoes all that. But a lot of people believe that the original Blade Runner also ended in a, in a was it a virtual reality or just a? An, a, a yeah, either a virtual reality or some kind of just uh, simulation inside of his own head yeah. simulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's and I, I like that, you know, we're bringing that up, too, because you notice that at the end, uh, it's a narration rather than actually like seeing the stuff that's happened. We've seen this stuff happen the whole time. There's been no voiceover, nothing. like, And then all of a sudden there's a voiceover right at the end trying to wrap things up nice and neat because, oh, my gosh, this movie's gotten over two hours. And this is from the age when movies were not over two hours long. <laughs> that's right. And um, and, you know, so this is an action movie that's gotten over two hours. Maybe we need to wrap it up now. Let's uh, tidy it up and finish it out. And um, I feel like there was really, you know, I, and I appreciate Spielberg, but he does have those endings that let's end on a light note and send everybody out of the theater nice and happy rather than depressed and sad that this is the way things happen and really thinking about uh, things. So I don't know. I, I, w- I was unhappy with the ending even though I love the whole movie, the movie as a whole is really good. I think the ending was just one of those things that I'll just stick with that theory that says that after he put, got the halo put on him, everything from there on is questionable. <laughs> <laughs> if this was made today, I could see an after credit sequence of Tom Cruise in the prison unconscious. Right. right. Make it so explicit. Leave us, leave us all leave us, leaving very unhappily. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, uh, one thing, the, the tagline for the movie is everybody runs. And I was, I was hysterical at the scene where uh, Atherton, it, 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 Tom Cruise's character is teaching his son how to run. And I'm thinking, yeah, because Tom Cruise runs everywhere in every movie. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's some great uh, supercut videos on YouTube of like every, every time Tom Cruise has run in a movie, because he's always running somewhere. It's, it's very funny. Um, all right so any other uh notes that you want to uh bring up now before we before we bring things to a close um uh, i i there were a couple of moments in the in the movie that i thought were uh, fun um there was the priceless look on witwer's face colin farrell's character uh when um anderton confronts him in the elevator with a gun in his face and he says um put the gun down i don't hear a red ball alarm you know there's not a red like in other words you're not about to kill me if you're about to kill me there'd be an alarm and then an alarm goes off <laughs> and then he gets this look at his face uh-oh <laughs> spoke too soon so i thought that was a, a funny thing uh, also i thought it was interesting how Whitworth's character apparently had gone to seminary uh but his father had been a preacher who had been killed on the steps of his church which is apparently what sent him into law enforcement so i just I thought it was an interesting character turn I was a little annoyed with Whitworth's character where I really felt like that scene where he confronts Burgess in Anderton's uh, apartment was he knew what was I thought he knew what was going on. Like they really I, I felt a little misled in that scene. And uh, and I was a little annoyed by about how that scene ended in, in the in the resolution of Whitworth's character. I just thought that's not how that should have gone. I, I just felt like it was I don't know. But but that's just me. But do you, so do you guys have any other notes uh, on this uh, things that you wanted to, to mention? There's a lot of real. In my notes, I wrote down weird bunch of characters. <laughs> um, yeah. W- Wally, who takes care of the precogs in the temple. Oh, yeah. Lives lives with his parents, but sort of dotes on them. A lot of Cohen uh, brothers like characters in this movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the drug dealer we mentioned, uh, Dr. Hinneman, who raised like raising poisonous plants and i don't know what's going on and even uh the one that's the scene that sticks with me and i think i've maybe seen this once since i saw it the first time is the eye surgeon peter stomari um, the great and creepy peter stomari <laughs> super creepy and tom cruise drinking that bad milk oh. and eating the, the rotten sandwich those things 
those stand out to me more than anything else in this movie. And I was so surprised that that's what I remember. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't even watch them again. Like I turned my eyes yeah. as soon as he reached for them. Cause I just could not look at that. Oh my gosh. So gross. Yeah. The eye surgery was definitely one of those moments that you're just like, I mean, oh. that, that that's a squeamish moment where you're sitting there and he's, he does such a great job of holding his, eye, holding Tom Cruise's eye open and, and, mm-hmm. Just making you really feel like, oh, he's really going to go through with this. Okay, here we go. It was such a gross scene. Like, right, he starts with, he like having like, um, I don't want to be gross about it, but like his nose, you know, <laughs> draining uh, down his face. Like it's from the opening of the scene, it was it was a very weird the scene. You're right. I mean, and with these weird characters and his weird uh, nurse assistant. Um, yeah, they, they are. In fact, I think some of these actors. Are 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 play uh, in these Coen Brothers movies? I haven't seen the uh, special features on these movies, so I don't know if Spielberg intended to evoke that Coen Brothers sort of feel to some of this stuff. But it was very interesting. It gave it gave the world a very lived in feel. Like you had mm-hmm. all these all these other threads of stories that were just popping in randomly to the 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 main main story, and it was great because you didn't feel like you really needed to pursue them, but it de- definitely added depth to every single character that appeared in the movie i also wanted to note john williams did the music for this movie he did which is something we have talked about the how prolific his music is and um and definitely came through here there were you could very he you could very much hear some of his usual themes but it was different than the than the usual thing so yeah that's a good good call on that um it was one of the, the i saw i see wikipedia says it was one of the best reviewed films of the year of 2002 uh, it received an Academy Award nomination for a technical uh, area, but uh, eleven Saturn Award nominations, which is which is pretty uh, pretty good. Um, so it's it was a big success, uh, and it was originally conceived as when it was optioned as a sequel to Total Recall, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, which would have hmm. been a very different movie. Uh, yeah. That wow, could, that's I didn't know that. But, that's interesting. But it's but also yet another movie where that plays with your perception of is it real or is it not? Or is it not? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's uh, that's Philip K. Dick, I guess. <laughs> Philip- yeah, no, that's absolutely. If you if you're looking for that kind of science fiction, definitely go read some of his novels because mm-hmm. uh, they're they're great. And um, I'd love for us to do Blade Runner sometime in the future. Both both movies because I think they're both fantastic. Uh, but yeah, that's the. Uh, that's his his shtick is like what how much does free will affect us and how does science build into that and the world that we're living in now and he was writing all this stuff in the 50s and 60s wow mm-hmm. yeah that's and he's got a very um film noir detective novel sort of sensibility to his writing as well but yet yeah, science Definitely. fiction so mm-hmm. so uh, anything else uh any other notes uh i think that's it for me <laughs> okay very good yeah so before we go, I'd, I want to take a moment to thank uh, our patrons who make it possible for us to create secrets of movies and TV shows. Today, we want to thank uh, Marion M., Lisa R., George U., Amy M., and Connie W. Through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, they make it possible for us to continue the secrets of movies and TV shows and all the shows we do at SQPN. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think of our discussion of Minority Report or of the movie itself? Or uh, any? did we miss anything that you'd like to bring up? We'd love to hear from you. So please go to sqpn.com slash secrets or the StarQuest Facebook page and leave some feedback there or send an email to secrets at sqpn.com. 
remember to subscribe to the show, like I said. And until next time, uh, Father Go- Michael Gossett, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Minority Report. Pleasure. Good movie. <laughs> and Thomas Sanero, thank you as well. Thanks for having me. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of movies and TV shows on StarQuest.